0: The Silicon Valley, ah, the world's hub of innovation, the pinnacle of capitalism. Every time Silicon Valley hears the news, it's either about some big tech startup or new unicorns or Facebook getting sued again, but no, today's episode is not about any of that. Today, departing from the boring conventional topics, we analyze the story of the biggest blunder Silicon Valley has ever produced. Okay, imagine. Um, People are saying that a company was supposedly going to change the world, only to watch it become one of the biggest frauds ever in history. In today's episode, we explore the story of Theranos, started in 2003 by Elizabeth Holmes, a Stanford dropout who was, believe it or not, claimed to be the next Steve Jobs. Receiving over $600 million of funding for what was essentially a series of lies, Theranos proved to be a very crucial case study and a revelation for corporate America as a whole. A story about deceit, fraud, manipulation, fueled by a CEO who would stop at nothing to make her pride dream a reality and fail horribly at it, while making thousands suffer along with it, including actual patients to whom her actions proved fatal. A company once worth over 9 billion dollars? What did it promise to do? And how did everything go wrong? Let's find out. Roll the intro. Cash me if you can. Your gateway into the world of financial freedom. She was the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. Trumpeted Forbes magazine, the next Steve Jobs said Inc, another business magazine that put her on the cover. In 2014, Elizabeth Holmes, then 30 years old, was on the top of the world. A Stanford University dropout, she had founded a company valued at as I said 9 billion for supposedly bringing about a revolution in diagnosing diseases, with a few drops of blood Theranos promised that its Edison machine could detect conditions such as cancer and diabetes quickly without the hassle of any needles whatsoever. Big from Henry Kissinger to General James Mattis sat on the board of the company. Despite being the subject of a book, HBO documentary and an upcoming TV series and a film, it is still unclear why Ms. Holmes took such a gamble on technology she knew didn't work. Okay, so speaking about her background. She was raised in a comfortably well-off family in Washington DC and was a polite but withdrawn child, according to people who knew her. There is speculation that there must have been immense pressure on Ms. Holmes to succeed. Uh, His neighbour, Mr. Richard Fuis, lived next door to the Holmes family for years, but they fell out when Theranos sued him over a patent dispute in 2011. Ms. Holmes' parents spent much of their careers as bureaucrats on Capitol Hill, but they were very interested in status and liver for connections, he told the BBC. Her father's great-great-grandfather founded Fleischmann's East, which changed America's bread industry, and the family was very conscious about its lineage, he said. At age 9, Elizabeth wrote a letter to her father, describing what she really wanted out of life is to discover something new, something that mankind didn't know was possible to do. When she was a teenager, Home started her own business. She sold C++ compilers, a type of software that translates computer code to Chinese schools. When she got to Stanford in 2002 to study chemical engineering, she came up with an idea for a patch that could scan the wearer for infections and release antibiotics as needed. She was a freshman. She became a President Scholar, an honor which came with a $3000 US stipend to go towards a research project further. Holmes spent the summer after her freshman year, interning at Genome Institute in Singapore. She got the job partly because she spoke Mandarin, which she learned as a teenager. There, she met a man called Sunny Balwani, someone 20 years her senior and was an immigrant from Pakistan who had some success in the dot-com boom of 1999 to 2000. With a net worth of about $40 million, he had the money and the status of a successful entrepreneur. And that is exactly what uh, Holmes was looking for in the first place. Also remember this man, Sunny Balwani. He is going to play a huge part in this story. Now, as a sophomore, Holmes went on to one of our professors, Channing Robertson, And said, let's start a company. With this blessing, she founded real-time kiosk, later changing the company's name to Theranos. Holmes soon filed a patent application for a medical device for analyzing, monitoring, and drug delivery. A wearable device that would administer medication, monitor patient's blood, and adjust the dosage as needed. In all its sense, it seemed that she was building a company that aimed to change the world. She already compared herself in a distinctly Jobsian fashion. She adopted Jobs's black turtlenecks, uh, would boast of never taking a vacation, and would come to practice veganism. She quoted Jane Austen by heart and referred to a letter that she had written to her father when she was 9 years old, as I said before. And it was this instinct, she said, coupled with a childhood fear of needles that led her to come with her revolutionary company. Holmes had indeed, you know, mastered the Silicon Valley game. Revered venture capitalists such as Tim Draper and Steve Jubertson invested in her. Mark Anderson called her the next YouTube. She was plastered on the covers of magazines, featured on TV shows, and offered keynote speaker slots at tech conferences. Holmes even spoke at Vanity Fair's 2015 New Establishment Summit less than two weeks before K.R.U.'s first story appeared in the journal. Yeah, we'll get to that, that's the interesting part. In some ways, uh, the near universal adoration of Holmes reflected her extraordinary component. In others, it reflected the valley's narcissism. Finally, it seemed that there was a female innovator who was indeed able to personify Silicon Valley's vision of itself. Someone who was endeavouring to make the world a better place. Holmes' real story, however, was a little more complicated. When she came up with the precursor to the idea of Theranos, which eventually aimed to reap vast amounts of data from a few droplets of blood derived from the tip of a finger, she approached several of her professors at Stanford, according to some of her new Holmes back then. But most told her that it was virtually impossible to do so with any real efficacy. Phyllis Gardner, A professor of medicine at Stanford said, and I quote him, I told her, I don't think your idea is going to work. And this was about Holmes' seminal pitch for Theranos. And as Gardner explained, it is impossible to get a precise result from the tip of a finger for most of the tests that Theranos would claim to conduct accurately. When a finger is pricked, the probe breaks up cells, allowing debris, along with other things, to escape into the interstitial fluid. While it is feasible to test for pathogens this way, a pinprick is too unreliable for obtaining more nuanced readings. Furthermore, there isn’t that much of reliable data that you can read from such a small amount of blood. But Holmes was nothing if determined. Rather than dropping her idea, she tried to persuade Channing Robertson, her advisor at Stanford, to back her in a quest. spoiler alert, he did. Eventually, Holmes raised 6 million dollars in funding, the first of almost 700 million that would follow. Based largely on the company's claims, Theranos reportedly raised roughly about 724 million dollars of capital from venture capitalists and private investors. Money often comes with strings attached in Silicon Valley, but Holmes's were unusual. She took the money on the condition that she would not divulge to investors how her technology worked, and that she had the final say and control over every aspect of her company. This superstitiousness scared off some investors. When Google Ventures, which focuses more than 40% of its investments on medical technologies, tried to perform due diligence on Theranos to weigh an investment, Theranos never responded. Eventually, Google Ventures sent a venture capitalist to Theranos Walgreens Wellness Center to take the revolutionary pinprick blood test. As the VC sat in a chair and had several large vials of blood drawn from his arm, far more than a pinprick, it became apparent that something was amiss with Thanos's promise. Google Ventures wasn't the only group with knowledge of blood testing which fell that way. One of Holmes's first major hires, thanks to an introduction by Channing Robertson, was Ian Gibbons, an accomplished British scientist who had a slew of degrees from Cambridge University and had spent about 30 years working on diagnostic and therapeutic products. In 2005, Holmes named him Chief Scientist. Gibbons, who was diagnosed with cancer shortly after joining the company, encountered a host of issues with the science at Theranos. But the most glaring was simple, the results were off. This conclusion soon led Gibbons to realize that Holmes' invention was more of an idea than a reality. Still, bound by the scientific method, Gibbons wanted to try every possible direction and exhaust every option. So for years, while Holmes put her funding raised talents to use, hiring hundreds of marketers, salespeople, communication specialists, and even the Oscar-winning filmmaker Errol Morris, who was commissioned to make short industrial documentaries, while Gibbons grew even more and more desperate to come up with a solution to the inaccuracies of blood testing technology, Holmes presented her company to more investors, and even potential partners, as if it had a working, fully realized product. Holmes adorned her headquarters and website with the slogans claiming, One tiny drop changes everything, and all the same tests, one tiny sample, and went into media overdrive. She also proved an effective crisis manager. In 2012, for instance, Holmes began talking to the Department of Defense about using Theranos' technology on the battlefield in Afghanistan. But specialists at the DoD soon uncovered that the technology wasn't entirely accurate and that it had not been vetted by the Food and Drug Administration yet. When the department notified the FDA that something was amiss, according to the Washington Post, Holmes contacted Marine General James Mattis who had initiated the pilot program. He immediately emailed his colleagues about moving the project forward. Mattis was later added to the company board when he retired from the service. And at around the same time, Theranos also decided to sue Richard Fuis, an old friend and neighbor of Holmes' family, as I said, alleging that he had stolen secrets that belonged to Theranos. As the suit progressed, it was eventually settled. FaZe's lawyer issued subpoenas to Thanos executives involved with proprietary aspects of the technology. This included Ian Gibbons. But Gibbons didn't want to testify. If he told the court that technology didn't work, he would harm the people he worked with, and if he was honest about technology's problems, however, consumers could potentially harm their health, maybe even fatally. Holmes, meanwhile, did not seemed willing to tolerate his resistance, and according to his wife, Rochelle Gibbons, even though Gibbons had warned that technology wasn't ready for the public, Holmes was preparing to open Theranos Wellness Centers in dozens of Walgreens across Arizona. Rochelle told Vanity that Ian felt like he would lose his job if he told the truth. They kept him around to keep him quiet. Now. Gripped and overwhelmed with worry, Ian Gibbons tried to commit suicide. He was rushed to the hospital. A week later, with his wife by his side, Ian Gibbons died. When Rochelle called Holmes's office to explain what had happened, the secretary was devastated and offered her sincere condolences. She told Rochelle Gibbons that she would let Holmes know immediately. But a few hours later, rather than a condolence message from Holmes. Rochelle instead received a phone call from someone at Thanos demanding that she immediately return any confidential Thanos property. Yeah, that was the level this tube down to. In hundreds of interviews with the media and on panels, Holmes honed her story to near perfection. She talked about how she didn't play with Barbies as a child, and how her father Christian Holmes IV, who worked in environmental technology for Enron, before going on to work in several senior government jobs in Washington, was one of her idols, but her reverence for Steve Jobs was perhaps the most glaring. That is kind of a personal attack for me. Okay. Um, besides the turtlenecks, Holmes' proprietary blood analysis device, which she named Edison after Thomas Edison, resembled Jobs' next computer. She designed the Thanos office with Lee Corsberg black leather chairs, a Jobs favorite. She also adhered to a strange diet of only green juices. Cucumber, parsley, spinach, Romanian lettuce, and celery. To be drunk only at specific times during the day. Like Jobs too, her company was alive. She rarely ever left office, only going home to sleep. To celebrate her birthday, Holmes held a party at Theranos headquarters with her employees. But the most staggering characteristic that she borrowed from the CEO was his obsession with secrecy. And while Jobs had a fearsome security force, who ensured that confidential information rarely, if ever, left Apple's headquarters. Holmes had a single enforcer. And here it goes. Sunny Balwani, the company's president and chief operating officer. Balwani, who had previously worked at Lotus and Microsoft, had no experience in medicine. He was hired in 2009 to focus on e-commerce. Nevertheless, he was soon put in charge of the company's most secret medical technology. According to several people with knowledge of the situation, the two had met before he began at the company when Holmes took a trip to China as I said, and eventually both of them started dating and, and even remained very loyal after the relationship ended. Among Holmes' security detail, Balwani was known as Eagle 2.0. Now when employees questioned the accuracy of the company's blood testing technology, it was Balwani who would chastised them in emails or in person, sternly telling staffers this must stop. He ensured that scientists and engineers at Theranos did not talk to one another about the work. Applicants who came for job interviews were told that they would not know what the actual job was unless they were hired. Employees who spoke publicly about the company were met with legal threats. On LinkedIn, one former employee noted next to his job description, I walked here, but every time I say what I did, I get a letter from a lawyer. I probably will get a letter from a lawyer after writing this. So if people visited any of Theranos' offices and refused to sign the company's lengthy non-disclosure agreement, they were not allowed inside. Now, Balwani's lack of medical experience might have seemed unusual at such a company, but few at Theranos were at a position to point fingers. As Holmes started to assemble a board of directors, she chose a dozen older white men, almost none of whom had a background in anything related to healthcare. This included former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State George Shultz, former Georgia Senator and Chairman of the Armed Services Committee Sam Nunn, and William J. Perry, the former Defense Secretary. Gibbons told his wife that Holmes commanded their attention masterfully. Theranos's board may not have been equipped to ask what exactly the company was building or how, but others were. While Holmes was bounding around the world on a private plane, speaking on panels with Bill Clinton, and giving passionate TED talks, two government organizations started quietly inspecting the company. It began to unravel in 2015, when a whistleblower raised concerns about Theranos' flagship device, the Edison. The Wall Street Journal wrote a series of damning exposes, claiming the results were unreliable and that the firm had been using commercially available machines made by other manufacturers for most of its testing. On August 25, 2015, months before the journal story broke, three investigators from FDA arrived, unannounced at Theranos' headquarters on Page Mill Road, with 2 more investigators sent to the company's blood testing lab in New York, California, demanding to inspect the facilities. According to someone close to the company, Holmes was sent into a panic, calling advisors to try and resolve the issue. At around the same time, regulators from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which regulates laboratories, visited the labs and found major inaccuracies in the testing being done on patients. CMS also soon discovered that some of the tests Theranos was performing were so inaccurate that they could leave patients at the risk of internal bleeding out of stroke among those of blood clots. The agency that found that Thanos appeared to you know ignore erratic results from its quality of control checks during 6 months to the last year and uh, supplied 81 patients with questionable test results. Now while the government was scouring those inaccurate files and data, you was approaching the story not as a fawning tech blogger but rather as a diligent Investigating reporter, Carew, who had worked at the journal since 1999, had covered topics ranging from terrorism to European politics and financial misreads before returning to New York newsroom and taking over the health and sciences bureau. As a reporter of obscure and often feaseless subjects, he was not enticed by assess, nor was he afraid of lawyers. He had won two Pulitzer prizes and taking on newness as significant as Vivendi and the US government. Meanwhile, Theranos had its lawyers send a legal notice to Rochelle Gibbons' attorney, threatening legal action for talking to a reporter. Those who spoke to the journal were met with similar threats. Now, back in 2009, Holmes returned to the Stanford campus, where a story began to talk to a group of students at the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. Holmes pieced up. In front of a chalkboard and answered questions about her vision. It became clear to me, she said, with conviction, that if I needed to, I'd restart this company as much as possible to make this happen. This is exactly what Holmes seemed to be doing. But yes, she did not quite succeed at it. On the Friday morning that they gathered in the war room, Holmes and her team of advisors had believed that there would be one negative story from the journal and that Holmes would be able to squash the controversy. Then it would be business as usual, and telling her flawlessly curated story to investors, to the media, and now to patients who use the technology, Holmes and her advisors would get away with it. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Carew subsequently wrote more than two dozen articles about the problems of Theranos. Walgreens severed its relationship with Holmes, shutting all of its wellness centers. The FDA banned the company from using its Edison device. In July, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services banned Holmes for owning or running a medical laboratory for two years. Then came the civil and criminal investigations by the US Securities and Exchange Commission and the US Attorney's Office for the Northern District of California and two class-action fraud lawsuits. Theranos' board has subsequently been cleaved in two, with Kissinger, Schultz, and Fist now more merely counsellors. Holmes, meanwhile, didn't go anywhere. As the CEO and chairwoman of Theranos, she could only elect to replace herself. Forbes, clearly embarrassed by its own cover story earlier, removed Holmes from the list of America's richest self-made women. A year earlier, it had estimated her wealth to be at about $4.5 billion. And that day, Forbes lowered its estimate to about nothing. Fortune magazine has its megalpa, with the authors stating boldly that Theranos missiled him. Director Adam McKay, fresh off his Oscar from The Big Shot, even signed to make a movie on Holmes, tentatively titled Banned Blood. Silicon Valley. Once so taken by homes, had turned its back to. Countless investors had been quick to point out that they did not invest in the company. That much of its money came from the relatively somnolent worlds of mutual funds, which often accrued the savings of pensioners and retirees, private equity and smaller venture operations of the East Coast. In the end, one of the only Valley VC shops that invested in Theranos was Draper Fisher-Juverson. Many may have liked what Holmes represented about the industry, but they did not seem to trust her with their money. Meanwhile, Holmes had somehow compartmentalized it all. She flew to Philadelphia to speak at the American Association for Clinical Chemistry's annual conference. Later the day, she was featured on Sanjay Gupta's CNN show and a few weeks later, appeared in San Francisco at a splashy dinner, celebrating women in technology. Yeah, well, lawsuits piled up. Uh, partners cut ties and in 2016, US regulators banned Ms. Holmes from operating a blood testing service for two years. In 2018, Theranos was dissolved. And in March that year, Ms. Holmes settled civil charges from financial regulators that she raised fraudulently $700 million from investors. But three months later, she was arrested, along with Mr. Balwani on criminal charges of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. So, after a couple of years of settled lawsuits, dissolved relationships with big partners such as Walgreens, and broken deals with the likes of Safeway, the US Securities and Exchange Commission formally charged Theranos, Holmes, and former company president Ramesh Sunny Balwani with massive fraud. The complaint alleged that the company raised more than $700 million by deceiving investors for years about the company's performance. Both Theranos and Holmes agreed to settle the fraud charges pending court approval. Home slots control of the company, returned millions of shares, and was barred from serving as an officer or director of a public company for 10 years. And so, even if you ask, like, if Theranos was to keep going, if if the uh, concerned people didn't get into their way and they could raise even more funding and keep, you know, researching the technology at hand, would they have made it? Well, statistically, the answer is still a no. When they were running out of money, Theranos insisted on experimenting on real patients to raise more money, yet every time they did that, they failed to come up with anything that was improved. As we discussed the technology earlier, the technology itself was kind of out of the world. It was just hypothetical at best, and at very, very hard to make. But the idea of using blood to test diseases reliably and cheaply is a mission that other companies have been working on with actual results. Genelite, based out of California, was frequently compared to Theranos during the peak of its popularity. The key difference is that it works and has FDA approval. Even so, it also uses multiple drops of blood and there is no at home testing equipment yet. Instead, it has a portable lab to be used at a physician's office which is called the Maverick Detection System that analyzes blood samples using a microchip to detect levels of antibodies or T-cells. Currently, it can run 62 tests. That information is digitized before coming back to the physician in the form of a report. All of this happens in 15 minutes, and journalists and other members of the public have tried it out themselves. So, we are obviously heading to a much better situation in the technology aspect of this and yes it is with absolute certainty one can point out that Theranos especially with its methods was no less than a well-connected starred studded fraud in its very basic sense of the word with sham to fool the public eye and yet again a 10 billion dollar company which is supposed to change the world ended up making thousands jobless a couple of lawsuits a suicide, and one CEO, who still refuses to top at anything to make her company a success. Well, that was it for today. I'm glad you made it here. This was fairly detailed. See, frauds on the political level or even business is no new thing, but Theranos, oh boy. This story certainly drained a lot of pockets and shocked a lot of people. Okay, yeah, my exams are just about to end and that means a plethora of new content will be out on my Instagram soon. So, you already know it. The link is in the episode description. Hit it and follow up. Share this episode with your friends because come on, who does not like a good old billion dollar fraud? I'll see you exactly in 7 days from now. Take care and keep cashing. Bye.